0: You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ian Butler, who is running Phoenix and Elixir in production to power a research collaboration tool called ScrollKeeper. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about the app we're going to go over today?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, So my name is Ian Butler. I currently work as a data engineer for uh, Birchbox. Uh, Scrollkeeper is my side hustle. Um, Scrollkeeper is a collaboration tool for researchers. So you can kind of think of uh, think of it like Slack for researchers. So they can upload their papers, um, they can share them with other researchers and set permissions around them. Uh, the idea is basically, you know, most researchers have a bunch of papers sitting on their computers at home and kind of, you know, uh, hidden in different folders. It's pretty messy. So this allows them to organize it. And when they actually have research groups they're participating in, uh, have a better project organization.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's actually a pain point for me. So I do some core stuff and trying to organize that even without other contributors. It's always annoying because there's files and images and videos and text. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Pretty cool. So how long has this site been up and running for?
1: Uh, So when did I launch it? So I formally launched it over the summer. So I believe it was July. Um, I've been working on the project, though, since last November. So a little over a year that I've been working on it.
0: Okay, so... Have you been working on that full-time since then?
1: No, no. So it is still a part-time project for me. I tend to work on it nights and weekends. Um, It is launched. I do have a few early customers, um, but I'm scaling it slowly. Uh, You know, this is more of, um, I guess, a niche market, I would say, right? Um, So it's something that I think is useful uh, and uh, other people are finding it useful, uh, but it's more of a full side hustle for me.
0: Right. So is it just you then working on the project? Yeah, exactly. Cool. So... When it comes to using Phoenix and Elixir, uh, you know, what type of questions did you ask yourself before deciding on that? Was there like a rewrite to that at some point, or you just started with it?
1: So I actually just started with Phoenix and Elixir. Um, I had used it in some other side projects that I was working on. Um, one was called Snippy. Basically, it was a code snippet aggregator for developers. The reason why I went with it outright for ScrollKeeper, which is a larger project than the one I just mentioned. Uh, is because of the functional programming aspect to it. It's Ruby-like syntax and the speed increase over Ruby. Um, In a couple of my previous jobs, I'd been a Ruby developer, um, and I liked the syntax, but I didn't like a lot of the magic in the language, and I didn't like how slow it was. Uh, So naturally for me, seeing Elixir was, like, really cool.
0: Right. Yeah, it is pretty neat, right? It's like I'm still fairly new to Elixir and Phoenix, but I feel like, and I'm also a Rails developer as well, same thing like you, like, just getting into the code base it feels so much less magicy like I can actually feel like I can look at the source code and, and understand it to some extent. It,
1: it, exactly. Um and another thing that I found with that is a lot of times um object oriented programming kind of scares people um and I figured if I was going to bring on developers later on for this project uh that having it in the functional style would be just a lot simpler for people to kind of uh, grasp when they did come on.
0: Right. So I guess at this point like you have no fear of finding potential employees and if it gets to that point
1: uh, no, not really. Um, So even though Elixir is a niche language, it seems to be, you know, one of those languages people are interested in trying generally. And I, I feel like retraining uh, Ruby developers isn't too hard. You know, I'm in the New York area. And uh, primarily around here, there's a lot of Ruby developers. So no, I, I think I'd be fine.
0: Nice. But uh, back to your application here. So is this uh, a monolithic application or do you have it broken up into umbrellas or microservices?
1: Yeah, sure. So it's largely monolithic. There are a few microservices I've broken out uh, to handle very specific parts of the functionality, but generally speaking, it is monolithic. Um, The reason I broke those subparts out are because um, I'm on AWS as well. like That's where it's deployed. And I wanted to do some things like Lambda functions. And also I have some pieces of technology that I'm using that are actually Java-based, uh, so I need to be able to call out to it.
0: Right, that makes sense. And you foresee yourself sticking with that type of setup for quite some time?
1: Yeah, I- exactly. I don't really feel like there's a lot of benefit into breaking it out into an umbrella application right now. I, I mean, all the pieces are fairly cohesive. Um, you know, maybe once, like, if I did start to scale and I got to a point where there were, you know, a lot of pieces that were doing very separate things and they're kind of getting in the way, then I would consider breaking them out. But right now, it seems very uh, you know easy and nice to have it as a monolith.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the monolith. And then it's like, well, maybe you grow out to it later, but that later likely never comes or. It, exactly. So in terms of that setup, um, like how how big is your application? Like if we just had to guess.
1: Um, so I, I actually I, I know exactly how big it is. Um, so it's about 8000 lines of code. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it's it's not small, but it's also not the largest code base in the world either. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's getting up there.
0: Do you happen to know like maybe off the top of your head, like what type of, well, let me first ask you, are, are you using contexts?
1: Uh, yes. So I am using contexts. Um, whether I'm using them correctly is a different story.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a struggle I had as well, because it's like, you know, one of the cool things about Elixir and, and Phoenix, I guess specifically, it's like you kind of get this guidance from the framework, but it's sort of up to you on how you want to organize a lot of things.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like in my case, the contexts are largely grouping like similar functionality together. So things that I think share some concerns and/or topic matters are largely grouped together under contexts in my project. Sometimes they don't actually interact at all, though. So like maybe it's not exactly the right use case for it. But yeah.
0: Would you mind rattling off maybe a couple of context names that you have?
1: Uh, yes. So I literally have a context called reading, um, and that has to do largely with any of the uh, document parsing, um, any of the sending over individual pieces of the document back to the front end um you know doing doing our entire parsing pipeline so when you upload a paper itself um, it goes through this whole pipeline that i built out that basically takes it from a pdf into a custom text format i have in the back end and then can spit it back out if you request it later on so so readings one of them um, and then i have accounts which is another fairly generic one but that literally has to do with uh, my you know, user model, and then basically permissioning and authorization. That's two good examples.
0: Interesting. So you're processing PDF files. Are are you using some type of uh, like a background library for that? Or are you just using Elixir natively?
1: Yeah. So uh, what happens is first, basically, I pull the PDF over into my server. You upload it like a plug upload. I pass it back to an application called Grobid. It's a Java parser, uh, machine learning enabled Java parser. That gives me back an XML document uh, in a very specific format for academic papers. I then use uh, XLT, um, which is like XML transformations, uh, to transform that into my custom schema. Uh, then I store that uh, back on AWS s 3.
0: And then when it comes to processing that type of work, like that's all happening outside the scope of like, I guess a cowboy request, right? Like in the background?
1: Yeah, exactly. So what I have going on for that is basically when you upload a paper for me, um, I set a ca- max cap I think about um, 10 megabytes. Uh, when you upload that, I actually use a task supervisor to kick off a worker, which then parses that paper. Uh, within that worker itself, there's actually a few kind of cues going on because like I said, I have a few external dependencies and things like that. And then when it's all done, I actually use um, sockets or rather channels in this context to send back the uh, parsed papers information to that user's client and to anybody who's a part of that user's group.
0: Nice. Yeah, you just name dropped a couple of Phoenix terms there, context and channels. So... Um, speaking of Phoenix features and using channels and web sockets, have you played around a little bit with live view in this project or no?
1: No, I haven't. Um live view is still fairly nascent when I started the project. So I I I'm using so so the way that I approach developing web apps, I, I typically do the split API like front end model. So I have a React app that just makes API requests to my application. So so I didn't do live view at all for this one. And I'm not using um any of the rendering capabilities of uh, Phoenix either.
0: Oh, okay. Is that just kind of? I guess you kind of mentioned that's because Live View didn't exist when you started that. Is that something you would change today, or maybe like let's fast forward six months from now if you were starting it over?
1: Um, so my understanding is that Live View handles some things like some more simpler things, and you know maybe the scale of like medium complexity. But I have some fairly complex things going on in the front end, so I don't know if Live View necessarily makes sense for what I want to do. Again, I might be speaking totally incorrectly just because I haven't used it, right? And I haven't had really a need to look too deeply into it. It's definitely cool. If I was starting a project from scratch, I'd definitely try it. But whether it fit or not is a different, um, you know, talking point, I guess.
0: Right. Yeah, I didn't really look too deep into your application itself. Like, I didn't sign up for it. Maybe you just want to go over some of the the components that make it not a good fit for Live View, perhaps? Like, what what type of stuff are you doing on the front end that's, I guess, quite complicated?
1: Yeah, sure. So, for instance, when I when you upload papers, right, there's a lot of uh, the asynchronous processing. So we have a bunch of moving parts on the, like, upload bar. Um, so there's a bunch of, like, documents that get added to this kind of, like, queue-like thing on the left-hand side of your screen. Um, there's processing that's going on there. Um, when it finishes, you have a full drop-down menu of all of the, like, subheadings and document itself. And then I have uh, the full actual uh, document when you click on it. Like I said, I have a custom text format. So not only is it displaying the PDF, but I actually have the ability to display our custom text format. And there's a lot of moving parts within that format. So I I capture like formulas, I capture annotations, I capture pictures. um, And basically, I, I recombine my custom format with the pictures in the PDF. So all those pictures are actually inlined in the text in my custom format. Um, when you click on those pictures, it pops up the picture, um, whole lot of things going on there. And then besides that, if that's not satisfactory, maybe I did a bad parse or something like that, uh, you can click a button and it'll give you the full PDF, uh, loaded into PDFJS, um, which is a bit complex as well, because it's like the full binary data. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, no, that sounds like a really cool setup. I actually didn't even know that you can parse a PDF like in that much detail.
1: Yeah, yeah, this has been. Uh, so neither did I before I started doing this. Let, let's say that. Yeah, it was definitely a learning experience to how deeply um, I could kind of get information out of the PDFs.
0: Yeah, I feel so bad in some of some of the web apps I've written. It's like. You know, when it comes to like invoicing and stuff like that, and it's like you want to generate a PDF. Well, just go and go to your browser and print it and save it as a PDF. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> bypass all the you know all of that stuff. So, what does the uh, what does the rest of your tech stack kind of look like?
1: Um, sure. So, as we know, um, you know, Elixir and Phoenix is kind of the API tier. Um, I have some Lambda functions on AWS working to basically, uh, like I like I just mentioned about the pictures, it it will extract the pictures from the text uh, and then basically put it back into the text for me, so it'll like append it to the end of like my custom representation. Uh that's pretty heavy and I use some interesting Python libraries to accomplish that in the lambda uh, lambda function. Then I am deployed, like I said, on AWS, uh, leveraging ECS. So I basically have EC2 based ECS clusters uh that can dynamically scale or deload as needed. Um I'm using something called Spotinst to do that. They're actually a pretty cool technology. They basically link in with your AWS account um, and do the full load calculations to, like, predictively analyze when you're going to experience load. But the cool thing about them, their name named Spotinst. They actually continuously shift my EC2, uh, ECS instances over to new Spot instance ones. And if you're not familiar with Spot instances, they're basically um, EC2 instances that are like leftover compute that people aren't using. So it's for like pennies on the dollar, and it will dynamically shift my uh, application onto these new uh, spot instances without interrupting the use uh, that users are going through.
0: Wow, that actually sounds really, really cool.
1: Yeah, a friend of mine recommended it to me, and I kind of just stumbled onto it. I was like, sure, let me give it a shot, and it has saved me a lot of money.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely going to have to drop a link to that in the show notes, because I have not heard of that service before. Yeah. Was it just spotins.com? Spotinst. So, uh, at- oh, inst. Yep, yep. Okay, cool. So using ECS, does that mean maybe you're using Docker in development as well or no?
1: Uh, so not in development. Uh, I do deploy with it, though. Um, so, so I guess kind of my processes is I'll finish working on a feature, right? Or like while I'm working on the feature, um, I'll recreate the Docker container locally and I'll attempt to run it under production settings locally just to make sure everything's still functioning. Um, but as far as during the entire development, no. I, I do my development outside of Docker and then uh, I have a GitLab a CI pipeline. Uh, that will actually package it for me, push it up to ECR, and then uh, replace it seamlessly on my ECS cluster.
0: Okay, and that GitLab setup—is that like a self-hosted one, or is that the managed instance of
1: it? Uh, managed instance, and I'm using their uh, free runners at the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty sweet service with, with GitLab.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I moved over fully to GitLab probably eight months ago, and I'm very happy with them.
0: Yep, I remember when GitHub just started to offer. Uh, free private repos. And like that was cool, definitely useful. But yeah, for me, it's always been about like, the CI integration.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, And I know GitHub is trying to kind of play catch up there, but I think GitLab just has this superior offering. Um, I don't know. I, I also like GitLab's uh, issues board tracker. I use that for all of ScrollKeeper's issues at the moment. Um, and I've had a, too much experience with different issue trackers. Um, By far, I think it's both simple and complex enough, if that makes sense, to handle my use case.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely cool. So just rewinding a little bit about not using Docker, was there like a reason you didn't want to use it or?
1: Yeah. So I had experienced um, kind of doing local Docker development in a few of the companies I worked for, and I actually found the process to be more cumbersome than actually developing uh, outside of the Docker container. So... I do spin up my depend- some of my dependencies in Docker's, uh, Docker containers, like some of those uh, services I had talked about. Those are spun up in Docker containers. And then I just have my local API talk to those uh, through environment variables. Um, but yeah, the main reason is just I-, I had done some work in companies with it. It kind of put a bad taste in my mouth because um, of the way they had been set up there. And I figured that the least amount of complexity when developing locally would just help me go faster.
0: Right. Fair enough. Like I'm not here to judge about not using yeah. Docker. <laughs> now. Uh, Speaking of development, though, how do you test some of those AWS Lambda, like those Python functions that you're running in development?
1: Yeah, sure. So this is actually also another cool piece of technology that I leverage. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with LocalStack.
0: Mm, Fill me in.
1: Okay, so LocalStack uh, attempts to recreate the entirety of AWS's infrastructure locally. So you can actually do things like run Lambda functions locally. Um, It basically mocks out uh, the AWS library and then replaces uh, calls you make to AWS locally with the call to local stack. Um, so I actually emulate lambdas and their execution fully with local stack.
0: Well, that actually sounds pretty sick. Because one of my biggest complaints about serverless in general was, yeah, it's just like, what do you do in development? Like there's so many things. So how does this work exactly? Do you just run something like a service on your on your machine? Yeah,
1: exactly. So local stack spins up uh, Docker containers. Uh, you limit the ones you need with an environment variable, otherwise you wind up spinning up like 52 Docker containers. Um, but yeah, it just spins up a set of Docker containers. Each one that you have it spin up is emulating some service on AWS that you're using in your project. Um, and then you can effectively just use it like you were using AWS normally. Um, there are some limitations, obviously. So... Uh for instance, if you're using, say, Redshift like that data warehouse, they don't actually fully emulate Redshift at the moment. So but I'd say they're a hundred percent there for a lot of the common ones, like Lambda, you know, ECS, things like that, and probably like seventy percent of the way there for some of the more complex or maybe less used AWS services.
0: Well, that through a curveball when you said ECS, so you're able to actually run that locally as well? Yeah,
1: they do cluster emulation. Yep.
0: Huh. Interesting service. Is this like an open source thing or is it paid for?
1: Uh, so it's open source for their free tier. Um, they just released a paid tier a couple months ago. I was a beta tester for it. But yeah, the most of, most of the ones that I use are the open source version. The reason why I was beta testing the closed version one is I handle authentication through Amazon Cognito uh, simply because I dislike developing off solutions myself. Um, and the only way to emulate that was through their higher paid plan. Um, but I was okay with that. It's a really good service and it's pretty cheap. So
0: yeah, sounds quite useful. But, uh, speaking of cheap, like, do you just want to throw out some, like, what type of prices do they have?
1: Oh, sure. Um, I believe at the moment I was paying 15 a month. It's like their basic developer price. I believe it scales per user. Um, so like if you had a bunch of CI users, it would become more expensive. But like for me, who's in a, you know, solo development situation at the moment, the pricing made total sense. And even if I were to scale to multiple developers, I really can't imagine having, like, too many CI pipelines running. So, like, even if it were to scale, like, 15 bucks at a time, like, I couldn't imagine paying any more than, like, I don't know, what, 50 bucks or something. So, yeah, it was pretty good.
0: Yeah, no, that seems like a fair price given, you know, what it does, which is extensive. Now, when it comes to the rest of your tech stack, are you using uh, Postgres for your main database?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm a big Postgres supporter. Um, really like Postgres uh, as a database. But yeah, so I so use Postgres. Um, that's my main like relational database. Uh, for flat file storage, I'm leveraging S3. Um, what else? Yeah, those are my two main storage mechanisms.
0: Do you happen to know uh, what Elixir library that you're using to communicate with AWS?
1: Oh, yes, uh, I do. Um, it is... And do you mind if I type for this one? I know it'll call some sounds.
0: Yeah, yeah, go for it.
1: Yeah, xAWS. So x-AWS.
0: Right. Yeah, that seems to be like the main one if you Google for it.
1: Yeah, there there is um, another one that I also make some use of. Amazon actually has its like own uh, Elixir library, but it looks like it's just um, effectively Swagger generated stuff. If you're familiar with Swagger Codegen, mm-hmm. um, it worked for what I needed because it had some of the maybe like lesser known, you know, lesser used uh, APIs in it. Um, and I found that it was like sufficient for what I was doing and it didn't depart too radically from AWS. So
0: nice. Uh, just peeling apart more of your tech stack here. Are you using Redis or something like that? For anything or no? Yeah,
1: so interesting question there. So I actually am not using Redis. Um, I went the route of building out my own caching system inside of Elixir. Um, so I'm using a couple gen servers and basically with those gen servers, I made my own caching solution. I think it took me like a couple hours to throw up something that has comparable performance to Reddit, uh, Redis from what I was getting. So yeah, I, I think Elixir is really well formed and it has a lot of primitives that allow you to build fairly complex solutions to other things that would require external dependencies in other languages um i'm i'm not so much that like i don't know if you've ever heard of not invented here syndrome um i don't really have that but i do like to minimize the external dependencies in my project if i can um and so far it's been working out great
0: we don't really know each other but you're talking to not invented here like yeah that's me to like the tea. Uh, but that's pretty cool that you're able to get all of that out of that in just a few hours of, of coding really. yeah
1: it was it was really refreshing and it's really shored up my abilities with some of the more you know complex um, features in Elixir such as like Gen server. But yeah, it's been it's been humming along uh, for I guess a couple months now with that caching in there.
0: So before you went down that route of coding your own setup for that, did you look at some other caching libraries that Elixir has? Like, what is it? EX cache, I think, maybe?
1: Uh, yeah, uh, I did. And actually, what I found is a lot of their features were like too complex for what I wanted. Um, so I decided not to go with them. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, don't get me wrong, they are very full-bodied. I just needed something relatively simple. Like, like I find that Redis' functionality is very simple, so I effectively tried to mirror something like that.
0: Right. Well, I was just going to interrupt you there and just ask you, like, you know, what type of stuff are you caching?
1: Yeah, sure. So, all the documents I send you are really heavy, right? Like, I I said I stepped up to a maximum of 10 megabytes. So, uh, I personally have like 20 papers in my service. Um, One of my customers has like 50 or 60 papers in there right now. Um, So, when you first load them, I load them in asynchronously, but then I cache that. Because documents are not really changing, right? So, I actually cache for a fairly long time. Um, And that means that if you come back to that instance later on and I shoot them back over to you, um, it's like not very long at all to receive a multi megabyte document on the front end.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, just switching up a little bit here from your tech stack. Well, I guess we can ask one more question related to that. Uh, Do you have Nginx running in front of Cowboy or no?
1: Um, I do not have Nginx running in front of Cowboy. I do have um, API Gateway, which is AWS's um, kind of like proxy. Um, and then I have a load balancer sitting in front of my instances.
0: Okay. And then what about for serving static files?
1: Uh, no. And actually, most of the time I'm serving static files. Uh, if I'm not if I'm not recreating them, kind of like I am with the PDF, like if I'm not putting them back together, I'll actually just serve directly from uh, signed links from S3.
0: Okay. So I mean, even like your your front end code, like your app level JavaScript.
1: Yeah. So my app level JavaScript is being served from um, uh, CloudFront, uh, the CDN.
0: Right. Okay. And then between all of that, you're also using, I guess, AWS's uh, certificate management service for SSL certs. Yep. So have you gone all in with Amazon then also, like for Route 53, for DNS and all that fun yeah, stuff? Yeah, I
1: sure have. Um, so I've been using AWS for a long time. And what I find is even though they can be somewhat pricey if you're not doing things right, um, they are at least stable for the most part. If you ignore that day in like, what, 2016 when everything went down for a while. Yeah. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, um, AWS solutions uh, will allow me to kind of scale to you know any size that I want. But when I'm not scaling, right, when I'm a very small company, it just takes a lot of weight off the development for me. I don't really want to focus on building out my you know DevOps infrastructure, right? I want to be able to focus on the core needs of Elixir, uh, or sorry, of Scrollkeeper um, as an application for my potential customers and the features they want. And I don't have to spend time on a lot of those like third party incidentals.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense, because it is a lot of work to get all that stuff up on your own.
1: Yeah, exactly. And as a solo developer, it's enabled me to do a lot that I don't think I'd be able to if I was trying to build everything out myself.
0: So how many uh, EC2 instances are part of your ECS cluster?
1: Yeah, so uh, by default, I run three EC2 instances at any given time. Uh, I have the capacity to scale up to six under load. Uh, anything more than that, I have to tune it a bit because um, I don't want to you know, break the bank. Um, yeah.
0: So what's the uh, what's the turnaround time on that? Like, let's say you want to scale it up to, I don't know, five servers for whatever reason.
1: Um, so like I said, Spot Instance handles automatic scaling under a load. So I think it's something of response about like, um, think less than 30 seconds is the given window.
0: Right. Yeah, that's actually very nice. Quite fast considering you're going from, you know, three machines or whatever to five, not having to do anything.
1: Yeah. So, so one of the cool things about spot ins to go back for a second with them is they actually allow you to uh, reserve headroom. So they'll keep basically, um, you know, n number of instances in the wing without your application deployed onto them until they're absolutely necessary. So I do keep some headroom available just in case I ever, you know, experience some surge traffic or something like that. And they'll handle the rest in that case.
0: So at this point in time, like speaking of surge traffic, like what's the most traffic you had to deal with?
1: Yeah. Um, so, so like I said, we're still very early stage and we're fairly niche. Um, so we don't, you know, it's not in the number of users, but it is in the number of like papers coming in. So, you know, somebody was uploading their full collection. So it was like, you know, 50 papers and another 50 papers. So we're talking, uh, you know, megabytes here. So we're talking a couple hundred megabytes, just kind of hitting the instance at once. So. You know, I was really happy my like queuing and document pipeline didn't fall over because like the H- in that instance, right, like the HTTP request going over to the servers not really the bottleneck. It's like the processing of the flat file. So that was the thing I was most concerned about. And ever since I implemented uh, my you know queuing system internally uh, with kind of those asynchronous task processing, it's been holding up fine.
0: Nice. So do you have anything set up on the AWS side or even other external services to like kind of get an idea of what type of load the cluster is at?
1: Yeah, sure. So I have some monitoring services and like, I, I'm using AWS's like internal monitoring services, right, to kind of give me like an understanding of how much CPU load on average is occurring. Um, I'm also, like I said, Spot Instance has a very robust um, kind of uh, statistics panel as well that'll show you my load over time. So I'm able to go in there and kind of see what's going on for, you know, any given time frame for my instances for like, I think up to, you know, 90 days or such. Um, so, so I, I also have a few alarms set inside of AWS itself. So if things are on fire, I should receive a notification.
0: Nice. Yeah. That's pretty much the only way to live, like getting notified when things go wrong instead of having to like, just hope that things are going okay. Yeah,
1: exactly. Or like, you know, one, one of your friends who uses the platform, you know, text you and is like, Hey Ian, you know, scroll has been down for like an hour or two. Well, nope, that's not going to happen to me because I'll, I'll, I'll be notified about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The worst is when like it goes down for and you don't know when it really went down. It could have been down for days before you figure it out.
1: Exactly. And I I do not like thought of that. That, that. That's something that I would not sleep well at night with.
0: Yeah, me too. So when I went to your site before this call really quickly, I noticed that you had a pricing page and there was like a free sign up and a paid sign up. What type of uh, payment gate we are using to handle payments?
1: Yeah, sure. So I actually have Stripe uh, built into this. Um, the reason I went with Stripe is because I have a fairly like interesting payment scheme. Uh, so the more users you add onto your subscription, the least, the less it costs per user. If that makes sense. So mm-hmm. like it starts off at a fifteen dollar flat fee, right? And then up to I think the first ten users is an additional five dollars. After that, it's like four, and after that, it's like three, right? So basically, I do like um, a logarithmic kind of curve down in pricing. Um, and Stripe is really flexible—the ability to kind of have those custom pricing tiers. You know, being honest, uh, Stripe has this new uh, functionality. I'm forgetting the name of the service, but it's kind of like a drop-in payment page. Um, it didn't support my custom pricing, but the moment it does support my custom pricing, I'm actually going to rip out all of my payment logic and put that in there. Um, just because I don't want to have to actually be like, I am currently managing it. I know it's not buggy or I know it works. I've been, that is, that is probably my, one, one of my most exclusively tested pieces of code in the entire platform is the payment stuff. And that's terrifying to me. And it's not what I want to be doing, you know, as a company, I want to be accepting money, but I don't want to to be like worrying about bugs or, you know, worrying about like overcharging someone or something like that. Um, so the moment Stripe has that drop in solution, I will be replacing it.
0: Yeah. So I don't know the name of that drop in solution, but it's basically like their hosted checkout page. Yeah,
1: exactly. It's a hosted checkout page. That's like actually through their portal. Um, it guarantees secure checkout, it supports all the new regulation that's going around like 3DS and all of that for internationalization. And yeah, it just takes a lot of burden off me as a small business, um, because a lot of those like legislations that go through, you know, I have to accommodate them right now with my logic.
0: Right. So you, do you actually have your whole payment set up to support like SCA, like the strong customer authentication, that's the type of...
1: I do not. <laughs> Um, I actually made the decision, so primarily, like right now, I'm mostly U.S. as the market is concerned, so we don't have that going on. I decided to forego that. Uh, it's something I talked over with both my lawyers and just, you know, uh, people I consult, you know, on things with. And the general decision that I made there was since I'm not really breaking into the European market at the moment, it doesn't make sense to put that much effort into it right now, um, especially as a solo developer. Um, the moment that I do decide to start taking European, you know, uh, payments, I will have to rethink that.
0: Yeah, because that is one of those things where I just had a guest on last week, or two weeks ago, and we were talking about that. It's like, man, the burden to get that support into your application is like exponentially more than what it is without it.
1: Exactly. I mean, the big thing for me when I, when I was weighing the pros and cons of it, I was like, yes, I'd be able to accept more business, but I'm so small anyway that I don't really see myself being like, like I I don't think I don't think I'm gonna see a large influx of traffic from like outside of the U.S. And then second. If I do that, it means I'm tabling a lot of other features that I think can kind of benefit the users who are using it now more.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, because going all in with the SEA stuff, yeah. I mean, I don't mean I don't know how long it would take you to develop it personally, but yeah, like we're talking easily, easily weeks, like probably even like a month.
1: It, exactly, um, exactly. And that was that was you know when I, when I was making that decision. So payment stuff is actually the last thing I did in Scrollkeeper. I mean, I'm still doing stuff now, but I mean, what I was launching. That was like the last feature I did before I launched. Um, for a while I had just been using it, you know, on the free terms with no limits or anything like that. So I added all the payment stuff and the pro tier kind of limitations. Um, you know, right at the end there. So it was like, okay, I can either delay this or get it out. You know, frankly, you know, launching something is better than you know, again, holding it off and not launching.
0: Right. Yeah, I looked into their their hosted checkout thing, and I think when I looked at it a couple months ago. Uh, one big thing they didn't support then was coupon codes.
1: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I I did see that. That was a downside for me, but it wasn't the deal breaker. For me, it was the lack of tiered pricing support.
0: Mm, yeah. I mean, I guess at some point it'll be fleshed out and be very, very good. I'll probably eventually look into it as well later on.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Like I said, taking some of the complexity off of the work that I'm doing um, would be great. Uh, and It's just one of those things where you know, you kind of defer that risk onto Stripe, and that is their business. So,
0: yeah, yeah, totally makes sense. And then I guess you don't even support other gateways like PayPal or things like that.
1: No, I don't. Um, it's something that I decided at first. I'll just accept credit card information. Um, I am going to look into adding things like PayPal later on. Um, it just I figure you know, as far as surface area was concerned, the thing I can do first is regular credit card information, and that'll be sufficient for the time being.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense because I don't know when I go to some type of SaaS app, like I'm expecting to put in a credit card, not PayPal. But like for me, it's a little tiny bit different. Like I sell individual like video courses or whatever, and those like one time payments, and I feel like a lot of people like to use PayPal in that case.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like for one time payments, I can see that. Um, I use. I I actually I'm very similar in that regard. When I make a one time purchase, I often go with PayPal. But yeah, for subscription services, definitely credit card is the way I personally go as well.
0: Yeah. So speaking of SAS tools and external tools, maybe uh, are you using, I guess, SES for sending emails?
1: Um, SES for sending emails. Um, so I am not... So so the only emails that I really send are from Amazon Cognito. And I guess Cognito internally leverages SES, but I don't personally have to you know worry about it. Um, and the only email, like I said, the only emails I'm really sending are the up emails. So
0: yeah. Yeah, because I was thinking like if a user goes to your site and they register and they forget their password or something like that, you need to send a password uh, through email to them, right? Yeah,
1: I- exactly. Um, one of the nice things about that is inside of Cognito, which is the authentication uh, system that I'm using, uh, you can customize those email responses from there. Uh, so effectively, I haven't had to like manually customize SESS on um, Amazon. Uh, but like I said, I guess internally, Cognito is most likely using
0: that. Now- Stepping back a little bit here, just for a little more big picture type of thing, do you kind of just want to talk us through what it's like to deploy your application from your dev box up until it's running on UCS? Yeah,
1: sure. So it's absolutely painless at the moment, which is what I love. Um, So effectively, uh, what happens here is uh, my master branch is protected. So first, I have to push up some development branch, uh, go to GitLab, open up the pull request. When I open up the pull request, uh, my automated pipeline will run. So any tests that I have are going to run uh, the building of the docker container will run but it won't push on the development branch uh when i get the green lights there basically i you know look over my code or if i have a friend who like i'm using you know you know as part-time contractor and he's doing work like i'll look over his work if it looks good we'll merge it into master from master uh the pipeline will run uh up until that step like i said earlier where it'll build the docker container but this time i'll do a deploy step to ecr um and it's super painless uh from ecr Basically, uh, as long as you keep the name of the container the same when you push to ECR on Amazon, uh, as far as ECS is concerned, uh, during its next pass, it'll actually uh, pull down the latest one for you automatically.
0: Oh, nice. Yeah, I've worked with ECS a number of years ago, and it was a little bit... I don't know if things have changed that much since then, but are you still dealing with like task definition files and having to... like? update your service for a new revision of that on every deploy
1: so you are still dealing with the task um, definition files uh, you only have to update them now if you do in fact have changes to some configuration if you don't have changes to configuration introduced with the um, feature that you're adding or just deploy that you're doing uh, you can safely just leave it the same version and like I said it'll we'll pull down the newest version of your Ecr uh, of your container from Ecr
0: mm. yeah that's definitely a, a perk Because it was a little bit trickier a couple years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. Um, I I, I actually talked about this, not recently, but like in the last six months with somebody, and he said the exact same thing. So it has changed a bit.
0: Cool. I'll have to look into that one, because I do have um, some people looking to use ECS now. So now I can tell them it's, hey, it's easier.
1: Yeah, it's easier. Um, The task can still be a bit um, annoying to deal with. But for the most part, I would say I haven't experienced too much difficulty uh the only difficulty I did experience, um, they have a service uh, called Atmash now. Um I don't know if you're familiar with um Envoy. It's a proxy.
0: Nope. you want to give us like the TLDR?
1: Yeah, sure. So Envoy effectively functions like something like Nginx. Um but in the case of AWS, uh basically they use it as a sidecar to your main Docker container, and what they do is proxy communications between your other ECS tasks or services rather. Uh, through these sidecars so they can talk to each other in like a local network uh, in ECS versus like going through um, some of the like, you know, internet gateways or something like that for things to talk to each other. The difficulty I experienced with that is um, the proxies at the time didn't support upgrading WebSocket requests. Um, so basically, I was in the situation where I had just finished working on like my WebSocket stuff locally, uh, pushed it up to uh, production to see it working. Oh my god, this and suddenly, I couldn't get any of the WebSocket requests to go through. And I was like, what's going on here? I then spent the next like several hours ripping out my hair until I found out the uh, Envoy proxy didn't support WebSocket upgrading. Um, I opened an issue on AWS's um, AppMesh repository, and it's like a feature they want to support. I'm really not sure what the status is right now. But basically, I then had to remove all of that nice AppMesh stuff and go back to the classical way of having your services talk to each other on uh, ECS. So.
0: Oh, man. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very painful lesson learned.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a lot of the advice that I've gotten on AWS is not to use a service that AWS releases when it's like only six months old. And You know, that's totally on my head. Um, I do know better than to use such early services in production, but I thought it was cool and i paid a price for it. So.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're always kind of making those judgment calls as a developer, right? Like if the service looks really, really, really good and it does something really, really, really great, then it's like suddenly maybe it's okay to take a risk to, d- to use it because it makes things way way better.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the other thing too is like, except for the WebSocket upgrading, it was very stable. If I didn't need to use WebSockets, I would have probably, I would probably still be using at Mesh. Um, it was just that they weren't, you know, I guess they were just feature complete.
0: Right. So going back to your deploy process a bit, uh, how do secrets get from your dev box up into AW or up into ECS?
1: Yeah. So this one is probably my my most low tech method. Um, I go into the task definition and I set an environment variable myself.
0: So it's like it's hard coded into the definition file?
1: Yeah, effectively.
0: And for listeners out there, uh, this task definition, unless it changed, it's a JSON file, right?
1: Yep, it's a JSON file. That said, it's only available within AWS's network. There shouldn't be much of a security issue there. It's just a bit unwieldy to have to go update.
0: Right. But those things hard coded into that file, though, do you not commit them to version control then?
1: I definitely do not commit those to version control.
0: Right. Yeah. Was that just like a judgment call and well you can't do it with the environment variables hard coded in the file, but Did you think about maybe getting those files into version control just so you have that there or no?
1: Um, So I'm of the mindset that you should never commit sensitive information into a GitHub repo, even if it's private. On the off chance your repo ever becomes public, you now have leaked secrets on GitHub. Um,
0: Hold on. Interrupting here. I didn't mean to like commit your secrets. I mean like somehow getting that task definition file into your oh. repo just so you have it version controlled, but then putting the secret somewhere else.
1: Okay. Wow. Okay. Cool. Yes. Now, now we're on the same page. Um,
0: I'm not that crazy.
1: Yeah, I was like, whoa. Um, so, so, uh, I, I didn't, I don't think I need to. For the most part, um, Amazon actually handles the revisions for you, so uh, I can go back to every single revision of the task that I currently have done in Amazon unless I've deleted it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, them keeping track of all that is uh pretty nifty.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. Um, they also offer a non-JSON interface to update it now, so you can kind of just, like, it's like WYSIWYG.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I haven't used their console in a while.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely um, got an upgrade. I, I mean, I used ECS a few years ago, too, and, like, this is definitely what I would consider an improvement over back
0: then. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing some client work now where we're not using ECS, but I'm using ECR quite often, and the the new UI for that is quite nice from what it was originally.
1: Yeah, and they're doing that like all over AWS. A lot of the services I use on a day-to-day basis are getting facelifts, uh, facelifts left and right.
0: Yeah, I remember using it, and it was like, wow, like, this actually feels really nice, like which is rare for an AWS web interface.
1: Yeah, that, that is that is completely true. So, so I think Amazon services are reliable, but I think they do the bare minimum for their UIs, which is, depending on the person, a bit unfortunate.
0: Yeah, I have to give them credit, though, for their CLI tools. They seem to be very, very stable. Like some of the ECS stuff that I wrote even way back in the day, it still works today.
1: Yeah, yeah. Their CLI tools are very robust. I've never I've never had an issue with their CLI tools, even for some of the more complex stuff. Like recently uh, for my day job, I was working in like doing redshift deployments with the CLI tool for, you know, some automated automation things I was doing. And it was like super simple even for such a compl- uh, complex piece of technology.
0: Yeah. So now uh, coming back to deployment there, when you do a deploy and you have three of these servers running in your cluster, do you do some type of like a, I guess like a rolling restart, right?
1: Yep. Yep. Um, so uh, this is again where spot is super useful. So in spot you can trigger a roll, uh, choose the percentage you want to roll at any given time. And it is a staggered rolling deploy of the new services.
0: Right. So then in the end, there's no downtime.
1: Exactly. There are ways to automate that too for the roll. So, so after you push to ECR, Spot Inst will like naturally recycle your instances eventually, right? So if you just leave it up, eventually it'll do it. But if you need it now, you can force the roll.
0: Right. So now though, going back to what you said before about, you know, people uploading fairly large files and you deploying from time to time, right? I'm, I'm guessing you just deploy whenever, right? Like you just whenever you need to. Yep. So how do you deal with situations where like let's say a user is currently uploading a file and you happen to do a deploy and like a rolling restart kicks in? Uh, will their file get canceled like three quarters of the way through the upload?
1: Um, so I have not run into the issue. Um, typically I try to schedule my deploys at night, which is a bit of a, like, that's more like lucky avoidance than it is like having like come up with some robust solution to have solving that issue. All the, all the work tasks that are being done, uh, in that like parsing pipeline, um, I'm actually using something called Rihanna for my queue internally. And all the queue state is saved to database. So if it happened to die in the middle of that, the next server that picked up would actually be able to rehydrate from Rihanna's job queue. Um, There's still failure modes there. If it was like at the end of that job or something like that, there is a chance for it to happen. Uh, It is a bit of a race condition. But like I said, deploy at night and with Rihanna saving its uh, jobs to uh, Postgres, right? There's like a much smaller chance of that happening. Um, I have to monitor that as if we grow to see what happens on that.
0: Right. So is that library an Elixir library, Rihanna?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So Rihanna is a queuing library in Elixir. Um, the reason I cho- there, there's a few different queuing libraries like Honeydew, uh, Rihanna, XQ, maybe. Um, but anyway, um, the reason I went to Rihanna is because I liked the interface a lot more and because it was backed uh, by a database queue. Um, as, uh, you know, opposed to being like ephemeral memory based. And I've had good use with it. Um, it boasts, uh, very decent performance. I haven't had an issue with it yet. We'll see what happens as we scale. Um, I had thought about building out my own queuing solution using some type of combination of like, you know, task supervisors, tasks, and like gen servers. But I was like, that's kind of crazy. Queuing's a solved problem. Let me use somebody else's library. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think like, I know when I first got into Elixir, one of the key selling points was like, oh, well, you know, as a Rails and Flask developer, we're so used to using like a dedicated background worker like scikit-rails or Celery with Python. And it's like, well, with Elixir, you don't need that stuff. But then like, when you really step back and think about it, like you kind of do because you always want that robustness, like uniqueness and like draining and periodic tasks and all these other things that you want to do, like rate limiting with, with worker type of stuff. Like, yeah, that external library seems to always fit its way in.
1: Yeah, exactly. So like for me, I started working on that like in-house solution and then like I didn't spend too long on it, but I like thought through it and I was like, okay, well, now what happens if I like want to extend this? Well, now I have to rip it out into its own umbrella application and effectively maintain it myself. And it's like, I don't really want to be spending, you know, so much time maintaining a Q library when there's plenty of Q libraries out there in the open that people have spent, you know, a lot of time making robust and, you know, achieving like feature parity with other Q libraries and other languages. So yeah, I, I mean, what it came down to for me, was like, don't get me wrong, Elixir totally provides you with the tools to build that out. It was just the long-term maintenance cost of doing so is what made me ultimately decide to go with another library, especially because those libraries in this case were more feature complete than what I was going to put together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned a couple of them, but have you also looked into one called Oban?
1: I have not. I've not actually heard of that one either.
0: It's got like mm, 750, maybe 800 stars on GitHub. It's another one that's backed by Postgres and, uh, it's got a lot of really interesting features. Like every possible like background worker slash queue thing you would ever want to do possible is in this library.
1: Interesting. I'll have to look at it. Um, like I said, Rihanna is good because I liked its interface, but as far as like having tested it at higher levels of throughput, you know, it still remains to be seen. Um, so I'll definitely keep an eye on that one. And, you know, it's in- it's interesting, right? Um, most people I'm sure would be like, you know, why did you, why are you, are an Elixir? Why are you using queues? <laughs>
0: Yeah. Meanwhile, it's like, there's many reasons why. Yeah, exactly. That's why there's so many different libraries. <laughs> so now that your app is up and running and everything is going good, do you have any like disaster recovery plan intact?
1: Um. So, I mean, if everything were to burn down, I would probably just roll the cluster. I know that's not really a satisfactory answer, but I haven't had to do a lot of like crazy things like that. I mean, like I said, everything's written to database. Uh, I store multiple copies of things on S3. Like the the moment you upload a paper, I've already got it on S3. So it's like, I, I don't, like, even if everything burned to the ground and things were down for a few hours, I'd be able to recover pretty well. Like I have backups of my database. I have, you know, multiple copies of what I store on S3. Like no data would be lost if there was like an issue with the, uh, serv- the service itself. I made sure of that one.
0: Right. Have you done any like low level work, I guess, to kind of deal with Maybe potential attackers like denial of service attacks and things like that.
1: Uh, yeah. So I have some like really loose IP bans um, associated with the service, um, and I have kind of like a few filters and rate limiting. So, so every so like I said earlier, everything that I have for my API side is behind Amazon's API gateway, which supports um, rate limiting and throttling appropriately for like a burst amount of traffic. If it exceeds normal like use patterns, um, so nothing I had to build out manually there. That should be handled for me. Um, the only things that I did add manually were like the IP band stuff around the application.
0: right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I like being able to leverage proxies and load balancers for that type of thing. It really like takes a lot of burden off of you.
1: Yeah, it, exactly. Um, it was nice to use API gateway just to be like, yes, drop this, uh, you know, drop this so you're not receiving all these fraudulent requests. Um, I do for my web sockets, purely leverage a load balancer for dropping those requests instead of API gateway,
0: right? now speaking of api gateway and ecs and all these other aws services thrown into the mix uh, are you comfortable letting us know like roughly how much you're paying per month for the setup
1: yeah sure uh, about 400 a month
0: okay so that's actually sort of i mean do you, would you say that's a little bit high or low given uh, what type of scale you're running at
1: um so it is i say medium cost i am in a position where i have um a bunch of amazon credit so i'm not really paying for anything
0: ah was that just like some type of i guess they have different programs where you can just get a whole bunch of credits
1: yeah exactly um so i mean i'll just come out and say it so i got 15 grand amazon credit um so i basically was able to run at this without much of an issue uh the nice thing is like i am running at a scale where i'd be able to handle like much more load than i'm currently running at but it's not at such a cost where like I mapped it out, like I'm not going to run out of money or at rather Amazon credit anytime soon. And in the chance where, you know, I decide to shutter this or move away from running the business, like I just need to like downscale the existing like deployment a little bit.
0: That's awesome. So with that 15k of credits, is that something that other people can sign up for or you or you just had like an inside thing?
1: Uh, it is through the process I went through to found my company.
0: Oh, okay. So it's one of those like, not like an open source initiative, but one of those type of things
1: yeah exactly so it was um i basically i used a company called gust launch to found my company um and they offer a tier where they give you fifteen thousand dollars in amazon credit in addition to you know founding the company and whatever you pay them and you know the trade-off here is right like i paid them x amount of money and i pay them x amount of money every year so the trade-off is like does the amount of money they gave me in amazon credit outweigh the amount of money i pay them in addition to whatever you know legal and other compliant stuff they handle for me as a uh, representative
0: right and you don't need to answer this but i, I guess the answer is yes it makes sense
1: <laughs> yeah it made sense exactly um i i am i am more likely to shutter this business before they would either like uh, achieve parity with what they gave me an amazon credit
0: yeah and i only brought it up like a little bit skeptical like surprise of the 400 because you mentioned this is sort of just like you know the ball's just getting ro- rolling on this project you know it's not really um, up and out there and like 400 bucks out of pocket early on. is like kind of a big expense.
1: Yeah. And you know, the biggest expense for me is a lot to do with like the parsing and stuff that I do. So, you know, for the API tier itself, I think I'm going, it's like 80 bucks a month. It's a lot of the stuff I have around the API tier that's expensive. So the thing that I use to parse, uh, papers, right. It has to be like fairly robust to handle a lot of papers at once. So I have like a high, um, throughput uh, box effectively ECS box uh, specifically for it so it's a lot bigger a lot beefier
0: right have you ever just for fun or you know for proper like scientific method have you ever just thrown a ton of traffic at it just to see what happens
1: yeah yeah um, I threw like so so uh, right on the front end and back end I typically limit the number of papers you can upload at any given time to um, like I said 10 megabyte total but that means you can upload as many papers from zero to 10 megabytes right Um, So I removed that limit for a little while and just kept throwing uh, my papers like continuously at it. So I think I did like 300, 400 papers just kind of like, you know, in the span of I think like five minutes before I had my queuing solution set up and my task supervisor and all that fun stuff. It fell over like uh, very easily. Um, Now it can handle it.
0: Right. That's awesome. That almost sounds like almost like a trolley way to set up a limit though. And like, I'm not dissing your your strategy for that, but it looks like. If you can upload as many files as you want, up until 10 megabytes, have you ever thought about a user just being like going into troll mode and just uploading like two byte files like a billion times?
1: Yeah, I have. And then that will change.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like I always train my brain. I'm, I'm always thinking like every user is out to get you.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a fair way to think of it as well. I mean, um, if that were to happen to my service, I would pretty put a pretty quick stop to it. I would still keep the 10 megabyte limit, but I would probably incur some, like, you know, must be bigger than something. But at that point, you're kind of like getting into the territory. Well, like, I know academic papers that are like a handful of kilobytes. So like, you know, you know, where do you you set that limit? I think I'd be better off in that case, like traffic limiting, if that makes sense. So like doing an outright IP ban on that user.
0: Right. Now, when it comes to uploading these files, we didn't really talk about it too much, but are you using uh, some Elixir library for that? Or are you just going straight plug upload?
1: Yeah, so I just go straight plug upload that um, I then have it save. So it's interesting, right? So I do the plug upload. Um, I take it straight to S3, right? Like right in the first HTTP request. And then from there, I kick off that um, asynchronous like background job. Um, on that background job, it pulls it back down from S3. Um, so not in a plug upload anymore um, and does the full like suite of parsing that I do uh, to the document. And then, you know, uh, sends it back over the wire through uh well saves it saves all the constituent parts that it does and then sends it back over the wire uh, through the websocket
0: nice so then as people are uploading a file they get the progress report of that happening right um
1: so they don't get a progress report but they do get a spinner
0: <laughs> right um, that's good enough yeah. it's some type of feedback that something is happening
1: exactly yeah so that that much that much i one of my one of the frustrating things for me definitely like when i was first working on the feature is like you know i did that part like a little towards the end but definitely when I was first testing it, I'd be uploading a bunch of papers and I had no feedback going on. I was like, this is horrible. I will not like I, I will definitely have some type of feedback for the users. Um, and it came in the form of a spinner. Yeah,
0: definitely works. So now going back to like developing things and trying things out, like what would you say given the amount of time you developed this for? Like what are some of your best tips and lessons learned?
1: Yeah, sure. Okay. So when I first launched um, Scrollkeeper, um, I didn't have that queuing system in place. And I figured, like, okay, cool, this will be an issue a few months down the road. I don't have to worry about being so like optimized. Um, and then I had my friend who is a user of the platform come along, upload his papers, and it like fell over, it died, because he had like way more papers. I I'd been testing with like five to ten papers, right? Um, so the thing that I would definitely recommend, and this is definitely like a rookie mistake that I will kick myself for, load test your stuff. <laughs> Um, load testing your stuff will save you a lot of pain, um, like for an initial launch, you know, you're so happy that you've launched your product and like, you know, you're like four hours into the launch and your friend's like, yeah, I killed your server like super easily. And you're like, oh boy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's always super important to, to profile your app, you know, just to get an idea of what memory and CPU constraints it even needs.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, so the second thing I would say there is, um, one of the issues that I ran into with Scroll Keeper was that initially I tried to do too much. So so initially I tried to do too much in kind of like these Docker containers. So, so I had the API tier and then I had like two of those microservices off in other ECS services. Um, the issue with that was the power that those EC2 instances had was very little, right? Cause they are very expensive so if you think you have like a high load application and maybe not even high load the number of users but like high load the actions that your users are going to take maybe think about moving on to like you know um third-party back services a little earlier than attempting to keep it all on like you know hardware because like at the end of the day that hardware is not going to scale nearly as much as some of those like serverless applications um so i guess what i'm trying to say is that in, in the case you have like task-based jobs like definitely try to offload it more to queue and like lambda-based and serverless solutions uh, little earlier than trying to do everything all in-house in the beginning
0: yeah no i think that's a great idea yes easier said than done
1: (laughs) yeah definitely um especially when you think you can handle it
0: right but it's pretty cool at least you get some help there with that uh what was it local stack
1: yeah exactly um and that that's been uh that's been a great help
0: cool so ian thanks so much for coming on the running in production podcast it was really great having you on
1: yeah thank you it was a great to talk about this um it was fun
0: cool so before I wrap this up, uh, do you want to share any links, like maybe to your site or Twitter account, GitHub profile, stuff like that?
1: Um, sure. Uh, So www.scrollkeeper.com. Uh, that is Scrollkeeper's website. Um, And then I am, who am I on Twitter? I am someone.
0: <laughs> I can always drop it into the show notes. Awesome. What about uh, GitHub, maybe?
1: Yeah, uh, I am Granda the Panda. I'll write that one down, but it's a name that you'll, uh, it's fairly unique.
0: Yeah, that's a name I'm not going to forget.
1: Yep, but- nope. <laughs>
0: That sounds good. So thanks again.
1: Yeah. um, No worries. Um, I don't know. Do you mind if I do a quick drop for something I just published? Sure. Um, So if you check out r slash elixir, I just posted um, a blog article, which will be a first of three uh, to discuss writing your own web crawler in elixir.
0: Awesome. I'm definitely going to check that one out. Cool.
1: Um, Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, no problem. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.